right. So thank you everyone for attending today. Uh, my name is Kevin Navratel, and I am the Democracy Commitment Coordinator and a political science professor at Marine Valley. And um, today, uh, the program is uh, continuing to examine uh, the polarization, extremism, anger, and mistrust afflicting our country. Um, we're over a year into uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which seems like forever and the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. However, uh, from a historical context, we've experienced far worse, and this isn't the first time that a pandemic has led to um, domestic extremism. So our focus today and our discussion is going to examine some of the historical examples of pandemics, social upheaval, or other major crises and how they have resulted in a backlash in extremism or a rejection of authorities. So I'm very pleased to be joined by three of my friends and colleagues in my department. Uh, we have all three of our uh, panelists are uh, members of the history uh, discipline at Moraine Valley. Um, we have Mary Fafleese Dunkel, who in addition to being a history professor also teaches uh, sociology and political science courses. And we have uh, Jim McIntyre. And uh, finally, we have Josh Fulton joining us today. And thank you to each of you. I, I've said this before, but um, you know, it's, it means a lot that you continue to volunteer your time and, and expertise to help us understand uh, some of the uh, issues that we're facing and, and provide your uh, expertise on these topics. So thank you so much. Thanks for having um, us. Yeah, thank you for organizing this. Um, I did uh, add in the chat uh, menu that um, there's an opportunity for, for um, those of you who are attending this live WebEx event to ask questions. Uh, we'll get to those as we can. So feel free to add any questions or comments that you may have via the chat function. So uh, to start off with, um, maybe just the first question could be, you know, thinking about historical examples of pandemics or so social upheaval, major crises that have resulted in extremism or rejection of authority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think that would be my segue to talk about, you know, one of, one of I think all three of us in the history departments, um, something that we all touch on in our classes, right? The Black Death, uh, whenever we teach Western Civ I or, or the bubonic plague, the first big outbreak that hits uh, the Mediterranean basin between 1355 and 13, or 1345, sorry, and 1350. Um, and, you know, we were, as we were just preparing for this yesterday, one of the reactions, and, and I think, you know, one of the underlying causes, though this is purely theory on my part, is the idea of why is this happening? Why is this happening to us? And so an easy go-to explanation in, in Western Europe was, you know, it's a, it's a plague sent by God. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had this reaction called the flagellants. These were people who uh, would actually have parades around the village or town, um, whipping themselves on the bare back and, and, I mean, seriously flogging themselves, drawing blood. And the, the idea behind this as a demonstration of their faith 
So if we show that we are willing to undergo some of the you know, uh, agonies of Christ, that God will see that we are devout and therefore stop this horrible plague from afflicting us. Now, you know, the, the reality of the situation when it comes down to medical fact is you've got by now the pneumonic plague where it's airborne and you've got people with open bleeding wounds. So that really doesn't reduce the mortality of the plague. In fact, quite the opposite um, in the end, you know, and, but again, I think that's, you know, and as I thought about, we talked yesterday a little bit about different peasant uprisings that occur both in France and England as well. But I think those are more convoluted in the sense that they're also due to, you have taxation going on and mm -hmm. greater sort of exactions by the nobility due to the hundred years war. So I think it gets too convoluted to say there's a real close connection to the plague. Mm -hmm. So temporally they're, they're fairly close in time. Um, at any rate, I think that gets us, gets us started and has probably given my colleagues some ideas to, to uh, make much more intelligent statements than I. So. No, no, that's great. That's great. Josh, you want to go first? Sure, sure. You know, in, in thinking about sort of pandemics or, or epidemics that I've either you know, sort of led directly to, you know, forms of, uh, you know, moving back against or pushing back against authority or forms of, of political violence or political uh, sort of discord. You know, I'm thinking a bit about the the 18th century and, and smallpox in the, the latter part of the 18th century uh, in the mid 1770s through the early 1780s occurring at sort of, you know, a pace with the, with the American Revolution. Uh, and I'm thinking as well about sort of broader epidemics uh, throughout kind of the transformational 19th century, really thinking about, you know, kind of cholera in, you know, the 1830s and 40s and 50s, as we're seeing sort of urbanization and that kind of unrest as we see immigrant groups kind of coming in and all of that. Uh, and then in the second half of the 19th century, thinking about things like tuberculosis and its contributions uh, to, you know, sort of political and class unrest uh, and the rising anarchism and, and political extremism that we're going to see, uh, you know, sort of within that time. Uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, leading up though to, to 1918 and into 1919 as well uh, for, for the global influenza pandemic uh, that, that wrecks the world uh, and, you know, leaves the, the world with a, a death toll that we're still kind of grappling with, uh, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we're going to be saying the same thing about COVID where we're not going to be sure how many 50 years from now, like still like estimating. And it's a good, it's a good question, right? Because you've got, um, you know, folks who in the, I, I guess, less accepting uh, of, of the realities of what COVID has been sort of mm -hmm. saying, well, if someone passes away due to this other thing, but they right. have COVID, uh, it's the other thing. That's the real cause. Right, COVID, right. COVID's not the real. And so there's that right. semantic debate that folks get mm -hmm. into as well. Uh, so there's that too. But I'm sorry if I cut you off. I didn't mean to do that. No, no, no. no. I was I was bouncing off of what you were saying because, yeah. Oh, cool, I just, cool. I think it's going to be interesting to see like later on because, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about that before, right? Like if you had cancer and you also have COVID, um, did COVID hasten that death that may you would have lasted longer? So I wonder how historians are going to be parsing that out in the future. Um, if we're still going to be doing that, like we're still doing 100 years later with the influenza, 
Um, yeah. But yeah, I think the, what led now these guys were, I'm sure, like baffled by by my talk yesterday because I was telling them that I was, um, you know, bouncing back and forth between the Salem witch trials and AIDS. <laughs> so it might seem like a bit of a disconnect there. You know, one's going on in the 1690s and one's going on in the 1980s, but there actually are some some connections. So forgive me if I kind of go back and forth. You guys kind of ground me back to earth if I'm not making any sense. Um, but yeah, but with, you know, the AIDS pandemic, there's there, I, think, I see a lot of connections between that and um, uh, and COVID. Um, and, and one of it is, I think, is that in, right now we're still kind of in the, in the immediacy of uh, of COVID. And if you guys remember, I think we all kind of, the four of us sort of grow up, grew up with the immediacy of AIDS, like in the 80s, where we remember all those things as they were happening. And now AIDS is sort of like a permanent way of life. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious, I think in like, you know, five or 10 years, I'm wondering if COVID is going to be kind of the same way. We're going to have to be having a booster shot every so every so, few years because of like these mutations that might continue to occur. But I was just thinking also of some of the variables that are similar. And tell me if you guys kind of, I wrote some of them down, um, but tell me if you can think of, of uh, some other ones I'm not thinking of. Um, but just like even of, of media information, right? The information changing all the time about what we knew about it at the time. Um, Newsweek had an article in 1988 saying that you could get HIV AIDS from kissing and from toilet seats. And I kind of vaguely remember that, but I was also in grade school. But I just remember like the overall fear. And I think that's obviously something that's universal, whether we're talking about Jim's flagellants or, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, the tuberculosis or the, the influenza, people are freaking out because they, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how this is going to affect themselves or their kids. I remember parents not letting their kids go to the playground and play in the playground. Um, funeral homes, not taking people who had who had AIDS, um, not accepting them. And, you know, now with now with um, with COVID, my cousin is an, uh, an ICU nurse and was out in California working and was just talking about the, the multitude of trucks that were outside the hospital because the funeral homes couldn't keep up with all the bodies, but all the, you know, the extra, but at least they're accepting the bodies. They're not, you know, the way that we're with AIDS had that stigma because of course, homosexuals were being stigmatized. They were scapegoated. It was their fault, right? Um, whereas I think with Jim's it was more like, you know, we're bad. <laughs> God's punishing us because we're bad. But in this case, it was, no, 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 these guys are bad because God's punishing them for their deadly sin of being off for, for being homosexual. Um, and then, um, Something else I wrote down too. Yeah, the, the, the disinformation, because that's kind of similar to the CDC trying to keep up with things. Um, and just like how the way that the virus, I think, was so virulent and how it, it wreaked havoc on the body so quickly. Because with I think, I think for all of us, you know, you'd know people that all of a sudden seemed like they were fine. And then in two seconds later, with COVID, were, were on their deathbed. Um, and with AIDS, I mean, it seemed like it wreaked havoc so quickly on people that were seemingly okay. And then, um, unfortunately, were, uh, in the early years, it seemed to be a death sentence. And now it's something that people are living with, which is the same thing with, um, with COVID. So I don't know, if, anything else you guys can think of that seem, that you see similarities with? Well, Kevin, I, you, if you want to jump in. I, what, what I thought, Mary, when, when you were mentioning, like, the article... Uh, you alluded to about transmission of AIDS um, mm -hmm. from from USA Today, I think you said, or um, yeah, Newsweek, or Newsweek. Sorry, but I, you know, I think at least my recollections, because yeah, I was in I was in grammar school as well, and you know, it just seemed like 
okay, the, the reactions of the adults around me were more like, well, they're learning more about this. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, you know, it's it's branded fake news. Whenever mm-hmm. information changes, there seems to be like a, just a, a deeper paranoia about this. Absolutely. Um, like, and, and a paranoia about science and scientists in general. It, right. and, and I think that's something that's unfortunately unique to this moment. It's like, well, you know, I'm sorry, but scientific advances, the, the more people unravel what's going on with anything. Right. right. It feeds into why we're <laughs> here. It's going to change. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, but going going back to the plague, you know, it's not spread by foul vapors. Right. COVID <laughs> is not is not spread by foul vapors, folks. Yeah. So we're, the, we're going the, to have to look at a germ theory here. Yeah. Um, Wait, miasmas aren't a thing? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. to your point, point, Mary, um, you know, I'm wondering about if you, if, if any of you could kind of speak to this um, based on your previous point, Mary, um, kind of a backlash of um, blaming, you know, the perceived originators of mm-hmm. um, whether it was the AIDS pandemic, um, COVID pandemic, you know, the violence against um, communities who have been blamed. Um, mm-hmm. Asian Americans. Right. Yeah. So I was thinking in particular, you know, the hundreds of people who have been attacked in last year, um, Asian Americans um, in the United States, but then also, you know, for, for you from a historical standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. parallels with, um, you know, the with AIDS and Definitely, definitely. Well, and for like, you know, for the religious right, you know, the moral majority and and the 700 club, you know, this is a group that were just sort of having their, and I'm sure they would love this statement, kind of their coming out party, right? In the late 70s, they were becoming a political force and amassing huge amounts of money at the same time that this pandemic began. Um, And and homosexuals, because this began as it was referred to as the gay cancer, in the beginning, because it did like did seem at the beginning like it was largely just affecting homosexuals um, because it was transmitted through sex. Um, and that, that's that seemed to be the only way that we knew, at least at the time. Um, they made a good scapegoat, right? And and they made the, the, the far right made the religious right made huge amounts of money um, by scapegoating these men by sending out you know pamphlets to their and, and they were also I have to say brilliant at fundraising. Um, in days before they had databases that were on computers, they had these written databases. And so they used them, um, and through obviously the TV as well, like the 700 Club, but to be able to amass this amount of money and and create this political empire. But a lot of it was based on, in the 80s, scapegoating people. And, and gay men made a good target because also they were still relatively young in terms of amassing their own political movement, right? Stonewall just happened in 69. Um, you know, they were just kind of getting themselves organized with different like ad hoc organizations. But then you start to see like as the as the pandemic goes on, as we get into like the late 80s and the 90s, where you start to see some real organization going on, um, like ACT UP. That was um, uh, Larry Kramer's organization. I don't know if you guys remember this. I read something that I forgot. I, I, don't, I don't remember seeing this. When the Gulf War started, like in January of 91, do you guys remember that a group of ACT UP activists got on CBS? And we're shouting over Dan Rather. I don't know how they even got into the studio, but we're saying um, that AIDS is our enemy, not Arabs. Kill AIDS and not Arabs. I, I, oh, I don't even know that happening. Um, they, they, they were so they were using tactics like that 
but then yes. became much more mainstream um, as I think as AIDS too became much more mainstream too. Um, and the cause was taken up by people like, you know, by so-called Hollywood, Hollywood elite too, which I was going to talk about that a little bit more. I talked about the government response, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. And then they became more organized as an organization and were able to fight back a bit better. But it's like, it's like David versus Goliath to fight back like at that, at that kind of that constant attack. Um, I read an article that I should share with you guys that was so interesting. And it was about these Southern women. It was in the Journal of Southern American History that formed uh, um, a pack called Magic, Mothers Against uh, Jesse in Congress about Jesse Helms. Um, and they were mothers who had lost their sons to AIDS, conservative women who had lost their sons to AIDS and how Jesse Helms was like a one man wrecking ball you know, he's the one that was like the one of the four senators who voted against the Ryan White, the CARES Act that was passed by Congress. Right. He was he was constantly voting against refunding it every single year. And one of the mothers who knew him quite well sent him a letter and said, can you please just, you know, this was my son. I loved him. And basically he wrote her back and said, well, you know, you shouldn't. I really feel bad for you, but you shouldn't have engaged in that lifestyle. And ironically, she ended up in a, a, a uh, nursing facility with him when he was dying of dementia years later um, oh. and saw him. Yeah. And saw him. And she's like, you know, I realized that he was just just a man, you know, but he'd been this again, this political wrecking ball. Um, but, you know, it was just rather cruel at the time. So I'll, I'll send it to you guys, though, because it was a really interesting yeah. article. I, I was thinking about as you were, were speaking, Mary, about um, you know, sort of Hollywood and sort of getting involved in things uh, because, you know, I I often think back uh, to try to speak from my own experiences and my, you know, usually the last few weeks if we're all teaching an American history survey too, it's the history of everything since we've been alive kind of a thing, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, half the time. And, you know, I, I remember very little, uh, you know, maybe it's because I was sheltered or whatever. I remember very little of, of the, the genuinely first thing that I, I recall was Magic Johnson. Uh, mm -hmm. of that, that was really uh, sort of the, the absolute sort of first thing. And the, the fear that surrounded that whole conversation and that whole discussion. Uh, and, you know, it makes me think a little bit about, you know, other pandemics and about that idea of what do we fear? Why do we fear it? Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing, because, you know, I think it was in his book on, on the influenza pandemic, uh, Alfred Crosby makes, makes the case of, we tend to fear this sort of exotic other, uh, that we, the sort of mystically exotic other, we tend to fear, you know, if you're a little kid, right, you fear a big, scary monster. You don't mm -hmm. fear what's close to you, right? You mm -hmm. don't fear the little, the little stuff. And, you know, his point is that basically that's the same thing for adults uh, of that we tend not to fear something that can be transmitted when we're just sitting down in a restaurant and, you know, sort of engaging in, in conversation and, and having some appetizers. We don't fear that. Uh, right. We fear this big other thing, uh, which which is kind of kind of intriguing. Uh, but to, to Kevin's point, I think about sort of discrimination uh, and about political violence and things and thinking about uh, it was made me think about, about Chinatown in San Francisco uh, and the treatment of, of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and, and Chinese Americans there uh, in the, the early 1900s when you had these uh, outbreaks and the ideas that the community was, was blamed. Uh, but then again, this is also a time period in which, you know, eugenics is normalized, race 
science is considered uh, the most civil way a, a nation can act. Uh, so, you know, in many ways, it was sort of the name of the game, you know, for those, uh, you know, those time periods. I mean, it's part of the reason why, you know, when the first polio outbreaks uh, started happening in 1916 in New York City, uh, elites were shocked that this yeah. was affecting white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were of wealth of how is it possible that this can happen because these kinds of things only happen to immigrants. They only happen to non-white individuals. They all, yeah. Right. You know, they, they only happen to non, you know, Teutonic stock, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, in, in individuals. Uh, and this is, you know, certainly something that was present as well with tuberculosis and those kind of things. But, you know, that fear, I think, is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I did have... Um... One question that came up in the chat so far that I wanted to try to uh, connect weave into this. Um, so over the over the summer, um, the, the 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 murder of George Floyd and the backlash, uh, you know, people taking to the streets, uh, you know, protesting. Um, and I think the comment in the in the chat was uh, about you know kind of the looting that was going on too. And I think the, the the point being is just like people in a pandemic are angry. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we're, you know, uh, at least last summer by that point, you know, we're months into this pandemic. So can you, is, do you think that that too, um, just in a pandemic where people are scared, it leads, sometimes things come out sideways where there's, where there's maybe a bigger backlash to um, what's going on in part because of a pandemic? That's what I, I'm trying to interpret the question, but I think that's what the intent was. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of too soon to tell with that one. I don't know what you guys think, but um, I, I feel like like the issue of George Floyd was just sort of like, this was like sort of a straw that broke the camel's back. This had happened so many times. But I mean, think about like, you know, with Rodney King, things that happened multiple times too. What made that different in 1992? I mean, I was on camera, don't get me wrong, but you know, was it necessarily the pandemic that made this happen? I think it was the pandemic that maybe had gave people time to see what was happening more. Like, I think like for white people, maybe to get more politically active and get involved, but I don't know if necessarily the looting part of it, I don't know, maybe because it is summertime. So people are out and about more people wanted to get out. So maybe that did kind of agitate people more, but I don't know if the outcome would have been any, if it would have been different and I could be totally off on this, but um, would there have been less protesting pro protest had there not been a pandemic? Um, if, it would have, if I'm saying if it wasn't George Floyd, it might have been something else. I don't know. I could be totally off on that. What do you I mean, What do you guys think? I'd probably agree with you, Mary. Uh, of you know, I'm thinking about you know 1968 mm -hmm. and you know kind of because you know there is on, on one side you have genuine political protests. And if we study the history of, of protest movements, right, you know, the idea is that largely these are going to be nonviolent, largely these are going to be very peaceful uh, actions, be it for racial justice or other social causes or, or really anything. Um, but that, you know, I, I forget the percentages off the top of my head, but that, you know, often you're going to get some folks, you know, who as a side part of it, because of the political climate of the era, also have other objectives sort of in mm -hmm. mind. Um, and, you know, that's sort of where, you know, when thinking about things like the looting and sort of other stuff like that, of, 
it's an event has created a climate whereby that can occur. It's not connected though. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's not the you know, it's not fully linked there of because this, they're doing that. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I wonder, and I, I think I agree with you that sort of time will tell on it. Uh, but, you know, certainly if anything, right, the, the pandemic sort of created a, a climate whereby um, uh, more opportunities, I guess, existed or something like that. Yeah, I, I would agree with both of you as well. And I would think that I would just add that I think due to the to everyone being on lockdown through the spring, and early summer and then you with a 24-hour news cycle you are repeatedly viewing if you choose to do that you're going to be repeatedly seeing and i think that's something new i think that's something that the students we're training now are really going to dig into you know if they go into the historical profession because how has how has this new media cycle altered the perception and altered because again you know we're, we're cooped up and i think people are i don't know if people are so much maybe angry at covid in 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 a way but also just generally frustrated with the situation around them that they really have no control over and then the, then things start to loosen up and then there's this opportunity to join in a mass movement and, and so, as you said, Josh, you know, it said you get a certain set of conditions that that maybe heighten, you know, a, something that would have been pre-existing already. I think we would have seen protests. Yeah. I don't know that maybe those protests would have uh, reached the levels that they did. And also, the, the as we talked about previously, I think on, um, on the staff development day, Mary, you brought up the idea of all the sort of fake reportage that was going on. Um, on that day, you mean when that yeah, was, yeah. 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 So I, I think, and I think again, that's a new, um, well, no, you've always had the rumor mill, right? But now right. I think it's, it's strange because we all have devices that, that can, and we've talked about this before too, right? Where we are all sort of reporters, right? <laughs> or can be. Yes. And, and, but we still have, right? Like that, you know, you could call it like the Dan Rather syndrome, where if you see it on TV, there, it must be vetted. Well, no, that's no longer the case, right? If you see an image on a screen, that could have been created by anybody. Right. right. So, exactly. But, exactly. But, it's, but it's attributed with uh, a legitimacy that perhaps it, it is undeserving of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did also, um, point out in the chat that um, previous, you know, about two months ago, I think it was Mary, where you, um, Matthew Harland, criminal justice professor, and uh, Dr. John Roman had discussed like the, the significant rise of the murder rate in the last year in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, and also some of just, uh, you know, uh, frayed relationship between communities and police and rising mm -hmm. kind of domestic violence. So um, I don't want to spend too much more time on that since we did have a separate event, but I thought perhaps, it, perhaps it'll come back up again and that's fine through questions. But just to kind of shift gears a little bit, um, kind of thinking about the role of the state in, in times of disorder, um, you know, what government does and or perhaps, uh, you know, going back to, to 
the Jim's uh, first example, the bubonic plague, you know, if there wasn't a strong state presence. I just wanted uh, to kind of frame the next question and your, your responses, you know, thinking about what government um, has or hasn't done in the backlash um, with that very, uh, through various pandemics um, or crises. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, sure, sure. So, you know, the idea of the role of the state makes me think a little bit about a couple of things. Uh, the first being, you know, in the 19th century, often you have a, a federal government that at least especially in the first half of the 19th century, doesn't really see direct engagement with the public in that way as its responsibility in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, that that's not the job of, of the federal government to provide any kind of, of aid or structure sort of in that way. But if we're thinking about sort of the, the late 19th century and really the first half of the 20th century, federal government very much so sees its role as kind of articulating what the state is supposed to be and then constructing programs to provide aid along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, again, in the second half of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th, this is an era in which racial science predominates. Uh, the idea of whiteness is best, right? Sort of that construct. Uh, and this is also gendered uh, and it's sexualized and all of that. Uh, and so what you'll then see is the state constructing public health institutions, uh, you know, kind of along those specific lines. Uh, I mean, the creation of the United States Public Health Service, right, sort of within that particular period, right, was directly informed by these scientific views, by the sort of rising tide of nativism that existed in the country. Uh, in the first years of, of the 20th century, uh, which culminates, right, in the construction of an immigration system in 1924 uh, that largely stops uh, most immigration uh, coming, into, coming into the United States, uh, right? This is why, you know, when folks are at Ellis Island or the often forgotten in the broader public, Angel Island, uh, you know, this is why, you know, certain immigrants are, uh, or all immigrants are checked for supposedly certain diseases because the public is very concerned about that these immigrants would be bringing in disease, right? Sort mm -hmm. of all of that. Uh, but, you know, this throughout all of it, right, the state is fairly commonly clear, especially by the time you get to the era of World War One, in constructing sort of what the state means to them and how the rest of America should fall in line. You know, this is abundantly clear, you know, certainly in things like the First World War uh, and, you know, sort of that idea of what are we fighting for, right? That kind of okay. kind of construct. All right. Do you want me to go, Jim? Or do you want yeah, go ahead. Um, So this was like, I was telling uh, and articulately saying to, 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 them, to the guys yesterday that, that this was kind of a, um, an interesting question for the AIDS pandemic because and I'm talking only now about the federal government response, um, not state government, because <clears throat> I don't know enough about that to comment on. But it's really interesting because, first of all, in the 80s, so you still have <laughs> you still have three well sort of functioning branches of government, right? The legislative branch is still functioning, unlike now where it's like barely functioning. Um, so while the AIDS response under Reagan um, is to pretty much say nothing because Reagan, it, you know, was um, you know, Reagan was buoyed into, I, sh I probably should mention this for the sake of the audience, Reagan was buoyed into 
the Oval Office on, on the backs of evangelical Christians. This is a guy who was a New Deal Democrat, right, who got huge amounts of support from um, the religious right, and they expected certain things from him. Um, and so when the AIDS crisis comes out, he doesn't even use the word AIDS in a speech until about 1987. And yet, there are things that are happening around him that are, you know, obviously troublesome. One of them is that one of his close friends, because Ronald Reagan, again, for those who don't know, was an actor. Um, not the greatest actor, I would say, but just a personal opinion, I'm just saying. But he was an actor um, in Hollywood, president of the Screen Actors Guild at one time. And, and one of his good friends, though, was Rock Hudson. And Rock Hudson was um, a very famous uh, Hollywood leading man um, who tragically was, um, was uh, stricken with AIDS and died in 88, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, of AIDS, and, and and that was that that struck obviously very close to home for President Reagan because that was a good friend of his, and so I think that kind of started motivating him to at least be a little bit more public about it. But but on the other hand, though, Congress was getting now lobbied nonstop from these like these these organizations like these ACT UP, and even and I, I got to give her her credit, and I'm not saying that she's like the only one. I'm just saying her as an example, but like someone like an Elizabeth Taylor from Hollywood because Elizabeth Taylor was like. You know this this very strong woman to be reckoned with who shows up to congress you know to and i don't know if you guys remember this i kind of forgot about this until i had this image in my mind i woke up like in the middle of the night don't ask me why think of remembering her with her with her very large uh, shoulder pads showing up to congress with her she had to have her white diamonds i'm sure perfume on that she sold and with some major real diamonds on too to lobby to congress about aids funding um, and they were like salivating because here's Elizabeth Taylor, like this beautiful Hollywood actress that none of them had ever seen up close. And here she was there in a lobby on behalf of someone like Rock Hudson and others and, and Ryan White, who's a, a young hemophiliac boy who'd been stricken with AIDS. Um, so putting that kind of star power behind it started to make the state kind of sit up and say, okay, we need to do something about this. And not just them, I want to make it clear. It's obviously others as well, but all that power combined um, but what's, what was interesting, though, that I came across is that, you know, Reagan had appointed um, C. Everett Koop as his Surgeon General. And this, this made me think of the, the, the uh, COVID pandemic now. Um, and C. Everett Koop was a very, very uh, um, ardent anti-abortion uh, campaigner. And I think the, the religious right thought that he would be like kind of their guy in that role. And he was. But when it came to the AIDS, the AIDS uh, pandemic, he basically was like, no, we have to give funding to schools to teach uh, basically about, about sexual trans, tra sexually transmitted diseases and how this disease is being uh, spread. And so they have to know they have to have this education. And the right was really angry about that because they said, you know, you're basically encouraging immorality and you're, you're encouraging homosexual lifestyles and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, this is basically, this is science. And this is like, kind of like my job, you know, I took that Hippocratic oath uh, kind of thing. And so he he stood up for it. So it's kind of interesting how you see this, this um, you know, do, things, things happening at the same time where they're saying kind of one thing, but doing another uh, um, at the same time. So I found that to be really interesting. But by the 90s, of course, I think the approach, it's been mainstream, right? You mentioned, you mentioned Magic Johnson. The, the, I think the government approach to AIDS was totally mainstream by then because of so many people who had it. So chime in if you think of anything else I'm not thinking of too. I was actually going to uh, dovetail with what you said, Mary, because I remember that. <laughs> I remember that on CNN. Um, so I'm, I'm really showing I'm old. But beyond <laughs> that, uh, that, I think the, when you mentioned Rock Hudson's death, I think that was really the beginning of 
like sort of Hollywood activism on on a social medical issue. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit for you know, of course, and 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 of course, my mind goes to probably the worst example, Jane Fonda and Vietnam. Yeah. Um, but and I think honestly, in ways that maybe may have made a lot of the the Hollywood elites or a listers or whatever we want to descriptor we want to use shy away from yes. getting involved because of the backlash on her. But then with Rock Hudson and and here was sort of this example, right of as you said, right? Very strong male leading man, sort of, you know, the 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 male figure in a number Just of movies. Guy, also, yeah. Right. And he was also on like a, a nighttime soap just before mm-hmm. he, until mm-hmm. he got too sick to act, basically. Yeah. So here was someone who was very much in the limelight, very much a public figure, and you know, was was recognized and respected in Hollywood mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of showed that, look, this isn't just a small segment of the population and, yeah. and you know, and, and encourage that activism, I, I think, mm-hmm. was part of it. Um, there was something else that, you know, made, that popped in uh, akin to your Salem connection yesterday uh, when, Josh, you were describing sort of limits on immigration and this concern about, you know, what are immigrants bringing into the country? My mind went to Natalie Zeman Davis and the rights of violence and the whole construct dating from early modern Europe of the community as the body politic and those others as being in, infectious to the body politic. And I think you know, what we might be seeing is just a continuation of that trope over the over time, over the long durée, if I can go a little, you know, Ferdinand Braudel on everything. You know, I, I, but I think, you know, the, the, the other issue that that brings up is that it becomes something in, ingrained in our consciousness, right? Like, we don't even think about this notion of others and fear. It's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So then what do you do about it? Right, right. So we, um, we can, just to um, back up perhaps a, a moment, I noticed that Jim pointed out that Rock Hudson died in October of 1985. Oh, okay. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, I want to say Reagan's first comments on public comments on AIDS was like, I don't, 1985. Uh, oh, I thought it was 87. I could, maybe I'm wrong though. Um, I could be wrong. Well, um, but my point being, um, without getting too much into the Trump administration's response to COVID-19, but just kind of the downplaying and, 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 yeah. and the, the public rhetoric of, you know, it's, it's only one case and, you know, it's got to go away and that, that kind of thing. Can, for somebody like me who doesn't have that historical um, knowledge, like the three of you, is that, has that happened, you know, in previous pandemics of, of kind of the downplaying of, of, uh, presidents and to those kind of examples that we just mentioned. Yeah, I can, I can certainly speak to that. Um, you know, if not pandemics, uh, certainly within other, uh, you know, major sort of dramatic events, right? So part of it is, you know, the idea of otherizing it sort of say, well, it's not really a big problem. It's really only an immigrant problem. Uh, you know, sort of that, that kind of thing. So you're looking at last decades of the 19th, first decade or so of the, the 20th century. 
Uh, so there's that. But, you know, when you're talking about the idea of presidents downplaying, the first thing that came to my mind was Herbert Hoover in the Great Depression uh, of, you know, basically, you know, you get to about mid-1930 into 31, and, you know, Hoover was very, very prominently someone who didn't really say much, uh, but it became very common that he needed to address this in some way. But he basically started addressing it by saying, you know, wasn't this depression horrible, you know, and, and trying to sort of say now it's over, uh, you know, it's over of, you know, it's almost sort of like the, uh, the think method of the music man uh, of <laughs> sort of that kind of thing. Uh, so, yes, there is a uh, precedent uh, for some, you know, administrations uh, with major events like catastrophically major events uh, that hit the country uh, to basically, uh, you know, misdirect uh, or to attempt to uh, shift focus uh, in order to be able to address other things. Now, of course, in the case of somebody like Hoover, by the time you get to 1932 uh, and the bonus march uh, and, uh, you know, you know, the tear gas in D.C. against veterans, uh, you can't really ignore that. Uh, but, you know, it, at least at the beginning, that was kind of that was kind of the idea. And then part of it was to, you know, shift blame. Right. It's the, Americans don't have this. It's these immigrants who have this. Uh, and part of that nativism and part of that Americanization effort that runs even through World War One was the belief that those first generation immigrants couldn't really become Americans, that that's not, that naturalization isn't really possible. Uh, and so really placing the blame on them uh, and saying that that, that needed to, uh, to, to shift or to be changed. My mind, Kevin, went to uh, when you said that not to necessarily to presidents, but to um, Philadelphia, was it 1918, I believe, uh, when they were having a, uh, sort of a welcome, welcome home party for um, soldiers returning from World War One, and, and Philadelphia health officials for in the city of Philadelphia, please don't have this parade. Oh, the Liberty Loan Drive, of, yeah, the, the Liberty Loan yeah. Drive, yeah. Please don't have this parade because you're going to, you know, you're going to just spread the, spread the pandemic, spread the influenza even worse. And they went ahead and had it anyway, and thousands and thousands of people died as a result of it. So it wasn't necessarily the actions of, of the president downplaying it, but it was more like, no, we, we're going to have this parade regardless. Um, but countries, I mean, during during the, the Spanish influenza downplayed it, right? The only one who didn't was Spain. And Spain got the benefit of getting, getting it named the Spanish influenza and got totally screwed as a result of it. Um, but we were the, the the government in general was downplaying it, right? We, we had we had bigger goals at that point. So I wouldn't necessarily say just a particular president in in terms of that one, but that's where my mind went. And and uh, you know, getting back to that question too, I think what you mentioned with Reagan is also interesting because think about it, it's eighty five, eighty six. It's his second term. He won yeah. in eighty four with a landslide, but he's also in his second term. So politically, he's he can kind of do what he wants at that point. And mm -hmm. and at that point, if the pressure is so great, you know, the the the, the phone's ringing with his connections from his Hollywood days, saying, "Look, you've got." Yeah. And, and again, you know, yeah, that's not documented, but I I strongly suspect that uh, th there were a lot of people, a lot of his his backers of long standing, shall we say, kind of calling him to account by that. And and again, he doesn't have to worry about re-election. Re right, right. And I think he genuinely, that was genuine because he was, he was really good friends with him. So, I mean, the idea that, you know, and I think maybe he, and, I, and I'm sorry for, for being off on the dates, but um, my mind is like, but the, I think that he, that was not a um, disingenuous response. I think he did, maybe he did want to speak out about it earlier, but that fear of, again, that, 
they call him the Teflon president for a reason, right? He managed to find this way to always get things to not stick to him. So he would find ways to do things when he could, right? And then and then always like kind of back away when he needed to, to protect himself. So you're absolutely right. By that time, he also had other fish to fry too with the Iran-Contra scandal and other things that were brewing in his presidency. Yeah. Jan Kapisky pointed out that um, Reagan's first comments uh, were September 17, 1985, and um, Rock Hudson dies about two weeks later in October. Um, So coincidence, who knows? Uh, Can't get in, uh, can't answer that. But um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit just based on some of the comments that in particular Josh had mentioned um so this isn't necessarily pandemic but in terms of like major social upheaval um of time periods with rapid immigration because uh, josh has mentioned this you know i'm thinking uh, chinese exclusion act um mm-hmm. you know i know that uh you in our previous discussion we we're talking about the post 1920s or early 1920s and you know reemergence yeah. of the Ku Klux Klan, um, replacement theory and, and so forth. So I wondered if if you could, uh, the three of you or whoever feels most comfortable talking about it, just that kind of um, uh, response to um, social upheaval and rapid change. Mm-hmm. If, if we're thinking about, um, you know, that, that period, especially so late 19th, sort of early 20th century, you know, you know, to use your phrase, Kevin, of, of rapid change, right? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly rapid, right? It, it shocked Americans how quickly things were changing to go from this, you know, incredibly rural uh, landscape to these new major cities with all of these electric lights, with these big, huge factories and all, you know, this is a, an environment that shocked folks. And so, you know, to add on to that forms of disease outbreak and also a real feeling that your sense of agency is going away, uh, you know, kind of in the everyday, folks act out uh, and they look for things to blame and they look for people to blame. uh, And that informs some of their activism sort of within the context of that period. Uh, And so, you know, when the state is clearly making their focus being, you know, support of, you know, the Andrew Carnegie's of the world and the, the Rockefellers of the world and sort of that kind of thing of it becomes very hard for those individuals to be able to feel that they have a voice. Uh, and so they, you know, look to, uh, other means, uh, which we deem to be radical, uh, which we deem to be, you know, sort of unacceptable. Uh, so, yeah, on one side, you end up with, uh, you know, millions of immigrants that are coming in. And so you have these opposition groups that rise up uh, that are, are actively supportive of nativism, uh, stating that these individuals cannot become American. And then on the other side, you have these first and second generation immigrants in these urban environments, because many of these immigrants who are coming in, regardless of where they're coming, are going to end up in major cities. Very few of them are going to end up out on the farm. I mean, that was a much earlier in the 19th century idea, uh, you know, who feel that the, the tenement life is horrible, 
but what else can they do? What other choice do they have? Where else can they go? Uh, and, you know, for some of them, you know, there's no representation for them, you know, what kind of advancement can they have? And so, you know, when we tend to think of individuals that, you know, we consider to be anarchists now, you know, we think of these very horrible, awful things in many of them in the 1870s and 80s, you know, we're looking for things like maybe a decent wage, a little bit of time off of work, uh, of sort of that, you know, that's anarchistic in an era in, yeah. which, in which unions are illegal. Uh, and right. so, you know, you sort of end up with, with that kind of interlocking uh, kind of to that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, those would be my, my first comments or thoughts, so. Um, do you mind if I, do you want to yeah, go, go ahead? Do you no, yeah, find, no, go ahead. Uh, I was going to bring up kind of, and this is, this actually is, because this happens throughout American history, right? Like as immigrants kind of coming, it sounds like like the days of our lives as the sands of time go through, but it's like, it's like wa- these waves that crash on the ocean, right? As they come in. So in the 1840s, you have these, these Irish and German immigrants that are coming in in these huge numbers. So you start to see the formation of these anti-immigrant societies that pop up all over the place that ends up leading to the formation of a political party known as the American party that becomes known as the know-nothing party, because as we were joking out before, they'd ask you, well, you know, what, what, tell me about this society. Well, I know nothing. I don't know anything about it. And that became known as the, the know-nothing party. But literally the platform of the American party was a nativist anti-immigrant party, right? These Irish were dirty. Um, they were lazy. They drank. They were Catholic. That's the worst of all, right? The Germans, we talked about, they drank on Sundays, right? Um, they were also, they, they, they did work really hard. So we had to give them that, right. Even though we didn't like that, but they did work really, really hard. So they weren't lazy like the Irish, but, um, still they're, they're overtaking, they're taking our jobs. I mean, this is a sentiment that you hear again and again throughout American history. It's nothing new, whether it's the Italians, whether it's, you know, Greeks, whether it's Russian Jews, um, but literally an entire, entire political party is formed. And it's not a coincidence that this is happening also in the backdrop of the political unrest that's going on in the country in the 1850s. Um, with you know secession kind of looming in the background, right? Um, and and the the American Party kind of gets some traction, wins some some state governments, and sends some some people to Congress, but kind of falls because the, the Republican Party then ascends at the same time, and they kind of fall out of grace. But um, I mean, yeah, literally an entire political party uh, comes out of just this this nativist impulse, and one can see parallels of that to today, right? You know, when when Donald Trump is talking about creating a separate political party, is that that different from from what it's based on. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure obviously superficially there are gonna be some differences, but there are a whole lot of similarities, I would argue. I, I just would quickly add to that, you know, for us who, uh, I'm thinking of Mary and, and I, who had panels in the 2016 nomination election and then the general election to where I know that, at least I can speak for myself, really underestimated Donald Trump's campaign. Oh, um, but the way that um, immigration, um, building a wall, um, and having really, I guess, the most um, conservative or um, strong views against immigration was able mm-hmm. to outflank his 16. You know, there was a lot of really um, strong candidates on the Republican mm-hmm. side who were, you know, former governors, current governors, former senators. Um, but, you know, that everything you just described kind of speaks to how that same issue played a role not only in 2016 but then you're kind of thinking about going forward about maybe through global migration 
how um, you know you, you see people not only in Central America due to hurricanes and yeah. and uh, domestic violence, mm -hmm. gangs, and cartels, but mm -hmm. um, in parts of the Middle East uh, in Northern Africa too, just um, high temperatures and and um, broken governments, and so how that might lead to you know, parties being um, divisions in um, Western countries like the United States being divided on, on immigration so much. Yeah, for sure. They're an easy scapegoat. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh, I was just going to say, oh, as you said, quit. they're an easy scapegoat because like you said, they lack agency, right? But so, I mean, yeah. whether we're talking about women in Salem who are independent and they're easy scapegoats, gay men, you know, in the 80s, like the, all, the common denominators of these are people who all like agency. Sorry, Josh, go ahead. That's all. No, it's okay. I was just thinking about what both of you were saying and saying that it's, you know, it's, it's good for, for our audience to remember that, you know, the border as it exists today, you know, especially in the South, was constructed of, the border is, was constructed over time that most of the Southwestern United States, it was Mexico. Uh, you, you know, I, I think a part of the, the modern discussion often, you know, sort of ignores sort of that reality uh, and the reality for many uh, who I identify as Latinx in the first half of the 20th century, the debate in terms of, you know, in an era of whiteness and sort of all that debating over whether or not that individual would identify then as being white and sort of how that process would work. And there's that sort of aspect to it. But even when, you know, even when you have um, the, the understanding of this very, very harsh immigration restriction in 1924 uh, of you still had an openness at both sides in the North and the South of, uh, you know, not wanting to restrict border flow from Canada or from Mexico. Uh, you know, even sort of at that time uh, of now, then again, you still have other forms of, of, of virulent nativism that are existing in the country after the shutdown in 24 of, you know, you know, after the, the Philippines are sort of taken as a territory by the United States in the 20s, you still have this, this violent opposition to the presence of Filipinos, uh, you know, and part of the support for Filipino independence was predicated on the idea that you could kick Filipinos out of America, uh, of, of that part of it. But yeah, I, I think it's, you know, that, that border aspect of it is interesting. So, mm -hmm. yeah. One other, um, there, there's been some questions in the chat and I just, with we're down to 20 minutes and now is a great time for any of you um, participants, thank you for attending. Um, we, uh, but please feel free to use the chat uh, function. Uh, there's a way for you to ask all panelists, or you can just ask uh, me as the moderator. But we hope to get to as many questions as we can. And one question, and I'm just kind of taking the the idea of this question and reframing it a little bit. But it really, uh, the question was getting at if there's not domestic unity. And there's so many um, frictions, whether it's political parties and different groups internally, um, the weakness that that provides in your ability to confront big issues like a pandemic. And um, 
I'll turn it over to you to to have your own responses, but perhaps like a twist of um, is this new for the United States to be so domestically divided and and um, not being able to coherently um, work together to um, agree upon solutions to big problems, or do you find that you know previous examples in history where this has happened too? June, do you want to go? Give it a chance to. Oh, I'll, yeah. You could take that back to the to the founding, right? I mean, you, you we we grow up with this wonderful myth, right, that everyone wanted Britain out, but we some we forget that there's you know, and then then at some point we learned that there are these really bad people called loyalists right? <laughs> who think that for a variety of reasons, staying part of of the British Empire is a good thing. <laughs> but even in that mix, you know, we, we don't really talk much about the neutrals who, for a variety of reasons, uh, disinterest, religion, um, really took no stand and oftentimes were persecuted and, and brutalized because they took no stand, right? Because they were just in the middle because, you know, we, we all know those those Quakers are vicious <laughs> seditionists and, and, and spies and so I, I think like the point the serious point being I, I think you could make a case right that that more often in the history of the United States we have been politically divided um, it's just finding a you might find a consensus on a issue mm -hmm. but I think finding a consensus on any set of issues uh, you would you would hard be hard pressed to to determine a point in our national history when that was the case. Yes, I mean, oh, go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just nodding in agreement. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking of uh, of you know Preston Brooks and Charles Sumner getting caned on the, the floor of Congress, right? Was that? And of course, since my since I'm I'm doing poorly on dates today, was that fifty? What was what year was that? I don't want to say eighteen fifty six. I don't want to be 57, wrong. Fifty seven. Yeah. Thank you. See, I'm I'm, I'm betting a thousand today for my dates. Um, but yeah, but I mean, like, so I mean, I mean, we literally had actual and Kevin and I have talked about this one before. Actual political violence because of you know Summers abolitionist views and Preston Brooks was this congressman who basically beat him up with his cane on on the congressional floor and and what happened? And he gets expelled from Congress, runs again, is goes back in, and then gets all these canes sent him in the mail from his constituents saying let's let's replace the cane that you lost when you beat the crap out of this senator on the floor of of senate so i mean there have been times obviously that we have had some major uh disagreement culminating in a civil war that's kind of a a pretty big one and i'm not saying it to be flippant i'm, I'm saying just just i mean it's seriously true and of course i'd argue that probably even coming out of it those years following the civil war into reconstruction were, were extremely tumultuous and there's a reason why they call it the second civil war because of just how shaky things were. Um, so, I mean, in terms of political divide, yeah, we've been through some really bad times. My only concern is now, and I, Kevin, you might have know better than this than I would, um, the, the, the Congress functioning so poorly though right now, I'm trying to remember a time when, when Congress has been so um, dysfunctional and I, I'm trying to remember a time where it's been this bad, and I, I can't remember. I mean, because at least where nothing is really. I mean, we had a couple. Right, bills got passed with COVID. Right, there was some legislation that was passed with COVID. So it wasn't like nothing was done. Um, but it seems like we can't get our act together with anything. So what we what we keep having is this cycle now today of 
you know, executive action being taken and then that immediately being undone by the next president coming in and the legislative branch of government getting increasingly diminished while the executive branch is getting and the, the judicial branch getting taking on greater importance. And that's that to me is really scary. So that that is an example where I kind of go back and forth where I do kind of worry about that right now. It is pretty, pretty bad. Right. There's a couple of different ways that you can assess that. And as you mentioned, looking at major legislation, kind of cornerstone legislation of an administration to see how many votes were obtained um, by the um, party that doesn't control the presidency. And um, as you mentioned, you know, with um, certain uh, recent acts with uh, COVID relief uh, has been different, but for the most part, you know, you, you uh, going back at least to the uh, Obama administration, there just really isn't any examples of, um, you know, I'm thinking of Trump's major tax cut where no Democrats supported it. Um, I'm thinking of the Affordable Care Act and the Stimulus Act. Um, uh, one of those received one Republican vote, I think, in the House, but we're just generally opposed. Um, so the other way of looking at it um, is to um, think of you there's there's ways of assessing um, the ideological spectrum within the House and Senate and, and looking at the most um, conservative Democrat and the most liberal um, Republican. And you can see visually on charts based on their voting records of how that has changed in the yeah. last three decades in particular. Um, and of course, um, we're, I was just talking about the, the, the least ideological within each party, but uh, most of the members of Congress have moved to the extreme. So you can just see this huge gulf uh, uh, in between them where, you know, many Americans might be more in the middle. Um, and, and of course, for various reasons, um, our representatives don't really represent that. So you're right, as far as it is, fairly new and unprecedented to have this level of polarization within the House and Senate, and then to have the um, party that's out of power of the presidency to essentially not be on board with anything, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm thinking of sometimes, you know, the, the first Gulf War, um, yeah. you know, uh, or uh, the vote in, in, in uh, the vote for the war, you know, many Democrats support supported that. Even the 2003 Iraq War, many right. Democrats supported that. So it, it is um, fairly new for our students who may be watching this to to have been, you know, basically born in a time period with this level of polarization. Right. I mean, you go back to the 80s, even right. I mean, there, there was still this the sense of we need to kind of. Well, we can argue in front of the cameras, but we'll kind of let's make some let's do some log rolling, let's make some deals and we'll get some stuff done. And, and that just seems to be, you know, we're just kind of in our camps and we cannot even sit together because if we sit together, that's indicating, you know, that's you're, you're, well, you're, you're betting for the other team. That's bad. I mean, and we've talked about this before, right? Like the, the, the famous uh, news, you know, audio bite of uh, Reagan and Tip O'Neill on St. Patrick's Day, drinking together at the bar, you know? And after Tip O'Neill had just like argued vehemently that week against one of Reagan's programs on the House floor, but there was no, there was, you know, it was St. Patrick's Day. And so they're both, they're both yeah. going out to tip a glass together. Yeah. And I think that whole idea of sort of political, you know, there's, there's the business of politics during the week, 
but that doesn't mean we can't find and i think that's something we desperately need is to find some common ground to make those deals happen to make mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. uh, they go golfing together they would like be you know um baptized like big, big godparents to one another's kids there was like a, a you know a, and I, I still think that does exist to a degree i just think that a lot of it has been since the 90s in particular and it's interesting john boehner's book just came out today uh former speaker of the house and 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 he kind of alludes to that quite a bit but i mean he also wasn't saying too much at the time when it was happening under his right. wife too so i hate to uh, oh. sidetrack this too much but i think that's it's an what? interesting conversation but you know, many of their kids, and I'm thinking of the 70s, 80s in particular, and even parts of the 90s, like, you know, when you went to Congress, you primarily lived in D.C., and your kids would go to school together, and there would be dinners. Um, and I think we all understand, you know, when people ask me about polarization, it's like we need to we need to work together, not just like physically work together, but we need to hang out together. We need yeah. to have our kids play together and all those types of things. Um, I, and that doesn't mean that we diminish the uh, differences that we have on political issues, um, but to, to, to your point that that's, that's all different. And of course, social media and the way that you can kind of hijack media to, um, I guess, get attention by having in a very extreme view is, is fairly new in our lifetimes too. Um, I shared it via chat just so my, I don't know if you notice it panelists, but just kind of taking this idea of division and, you know, there's been even thinking of COVID-19, whether it's vaccines or masks or social distancing or how much we should close the economy during a pandemic. Clearly there's been a lot of diff, uh, uh, division and this comes up quite a bit. Uh, this idea of, are we headed to a second civil war or, just like where states really kind of go their own ways completely on policies. Um, and you talked about, you know, the Civil War already. So like, are we, are we worrying too much about the trajectory of this, of where we're at or not enough? Um, do you see this as kind of getting worse than we've been in the past? Like, how, how do you view that? I, I, both. I mean, I, I think that it, do I think that we're headed clearly for a civil war, uh, a, an actual shooting war? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, this is concerning to me. Uh, the level of uh, inability uh, to build uh, community, the level of inability to build uh, some kind of, you know, collaborative work is very, 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 very concerning, be it media, be it political, be it, you know, basic agreements on, you know, uh, factual reality. Uh, you know, I was uh, chatting with my, my wife before we began this and, and and she was talking a bit about uh extremism and, and i was thinking a bit about extremism and and she was you know we were saying that uh the we tend to think of this as a a separate otherized issue much like we've been talking about before when in reality especially if we think to things like january 6th that's not a separate otherized reality that's your local real estate agent 
you know, that's, you know, Fred down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, we've got to figure out how did Fred get there? Uh, and what can we do about that? Uh, and the fact that he's got there, right? The fact that QAnon has become so widely, you know, pr profligate, the, the, was it the three percenters and the oath keepers and all these other sort of, uh, you know, that kind of thing of, you know, of these individuals who do this, they view it as legitimate and they view themselves as legitimate. And, um, it's not that that's never happened before, uh, but it's concerning, uh, how effective, uh, and how large it's growing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't, I, I cannot see a scenario, but of course now I was wrong about 2016, right, Kevin, we always joke about that, but I cannot see a scenario in which states can go to war with other states because it, it, would, it wouldn't benefit them. So for a state to secede from the union, they would lose so many benefits, right? So um, unless you're a state that's like, that, that is giving more than it's receiving, um, but that being said, we're also interconnected. So a state isn't just like blue or red. A lot of them are just, they are purple. They do. So what is a neighbor, like you said, suddenly am I going to wake up next door and say to my, my neighbor, oh, I'm sorry, now we have to pick up guns and shoot one another. I think what we're going to continue to see is this kind of this, this, this level, this low level violence that's happening throughout, unfortunately. Um, but this idea of, of states actually seceding, I, I think that there are extreme pockets that say those things, but I, I, the, the state governments themselves, I don't see them taking that seriously because they would be cutting off their noses to spite their faces. Like, how would that benefit them in any way? Okay, you're from your own republic of Oklahoma. How is that going to help you? Um, and so you're going to be this little, like, you know, island surrounded by other states, and you're going to form what new trade agreements with them? And I mean, how is that? I, I just you're you're going to fight the not fight. We're going to start fighting actual wars with what our national guards fighting one another. I there, I don't. I just cannot conceptualize how that could work. But the low level violence that's already been having, like January sixth, I think that's going to continue to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the, the idea that we can't say with certitude is just concerning in and of itself, <laughs> right? Like we, we can't just laugh yeah. that question off and that's a concern. But, and, and, and to, to kind of be counter to your point, Mary, but the problem we're living in these days is it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I've talked to, to, people I know from Texas and they, they mentioned secession and I think, okay. And all the federal money that's invest invested in Texas, like, do you guys think Fort Hood's going to be standing when you walk out of the union and all the jobs and all the money that pumps into the state is still going to be pumping into your economy, but they don't think that way. I mean, that is the problem. Like when you, when you start getting into this sort of, I, I, the ideology wars, it's not grounded in reality anymore. It's not looking at the, the economics of it. It's looking at the, you know, we, we want what we perceive to be our rights, benefits, entitlement, whatever, you know, whatever descriptor we want to use there. It, it goes away from reality, right, into this realm of, of ideals. And I think that's where that's where it could really potentially become a thing. I don't know about, you know, say texas fighting oklahoma per, or or whatever but you know trying to declare an independent state and put limits on who can come to oklahoma or texas or what they're going to you know what they're going to allow 
Um, there was the bill that just came up this week that where they overrode the governor's veto. So, yeah, I, you know, and, and again, I could see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I could see those sorts of things becoming like, you know, fights against the federal government mm-hmm. as well um, as, as opposed to like a civil a shooting civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope not. I don't. I, I agree with you to, to the extent that I, I the, the yeah, it's it's we're much more interconnected than we were in 1861. But I think the, the other things like economics, uh, social, you know, social justice, social issues, all of those could could become real, which, again, becomes its own problem. Right. Because you don't know where you stand when you leave just for the sake of argument. Right. When you drive out of Illinois and into Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes its own problem. So. Mm-hmm. To, to that, uh, my quick thought on that question is, first, there's a reason I think I've had like six events in the past nine months on topics like this is that mm-hmm. um, I share the panelists' concern of where we're at um, and the trajectory where it seems that we're headed. Um, you know, to Mary's point, you know, I do... I, I, I understand your point, but it's also internally within states the, the rural urban divide is so stark um, and just the way that you know you, you, you in my hometown uh, in, in rural Nebraska um, is very different than where I was living in Chicago um, and 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 so you do see pretty big divisions based on where people live. And now people are making a lot of decisions about the businesses they support, the boycotts, um, mm-hmm. the pressure put on businesses, you know, people fleeing one state to another based on um, policies of not just tax policies, but others. Um, so it, it, uh, in, in anyway, uh, we're down to our final minute. Um, before I make my final comment, I just wanted to give the panelists a final opportunity, you know, to, to make kind of a quick concluding remark if they have one, um, not to put you on the spot. Um, but if there's anything you'd like to say before we conclude our event today. Suck at concluding remarks. I hate doing <laughs> I, I like to think maybe I'm, I'm, I'm Pollyanna-esque, but I, I am an optimist at heart. And I, I still do think that there are more things that unite us as Americans that continue to unite us that we're not, that maybe you don't see as much in the media, but that are still there, right? The neighbors that are around us and, and, and you know, the immigrants that surround us that we're friends with that we don't necessarily, maybe, again, those things that we don't focus on. Um, I, I still, I, I still am optimistic that we're going to be okay. I think this is just a really rough period that we have to move through. We've had we've had rough periods in the past. I'm sure people said the same thing in the 60s, the 1960s. People said the same thing in the 1860s, and the Republic has endured. Um, I got to admit, this last one was one where I, I was more worried about the Republic enduring than I have before. But but look, at, so far, so far, we've made it through. <laughs> so I'm going to continue to to be optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic too. Uh, the, uh, the the first thing I'm thinking of is as you're speaking, Mary, is uh, the the whole idea of you know I'm, I'm an elder millennial and sort of sitting here going, 
you know, th this isn't a joke. You know, th this can be fixed, but it's on us to fix it. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, this is not a, a this is not a drill. We actually are the adults in the room, and uh, you know, okay, you know, we we it's on us to do the work to get it done. Uh, and you know, we all have to to kind of be able to work together and take it seriously, and 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 listen to those around us because many of these issues that folks are dealing with, they're longstanding. They're not they're not new. Uh, and so it's being, you know, cognizant of that and appreciating it. That's a big deal. Yeah, I'm an optimist as well. I, I'm, I'm not going to chirp in with the pessimist view, but I, but I think, you know, to, to build off your remark, Josh, I think we are at a time of reckoning where it's, it's not just COVID. It's a lot of things that, that have been tamped down, swept under the carpet, ignored and so forth for far too long. That are that are showing up as well, all at the same moment, and I think we're we finally, as a nation, do have to start to to recognize and deal with them. But but I think yes, you know, it we we can get through this, you know, um, as long as as long as we look at the person across the street or down the block, not for as red versus blue or what have you, but as the, you know, the neighbor who helped me out when I couldn't get my car out of the snowdrift. Or, you know, as, as if we look for those things at, on a community level, then I think there is a great deal to hope be hopeful about. Yeah. I would just uh, agree with the three comments and, you know, I, I think the optimism resides in us and, and, and I'm including the panel members who volunteer their time for events like this, uh, the dozens of people who, who take an hour and 15 minutes out of their day on a Friday to watch events like this, that this isn't destiny to go down some dark place with the Civil War, that we have um, agency in this and to learn, to, to collaborate, to, to work together and make this um, democracy stronger than we found it. Um, and I, I just, you know, I've, I thanked our panel panel members at the beginning, but I just want to reiterate, um, you know, history matters. And these these faculty members are not only knowledgeable, they're very approachable down to earth. Uh, I think uh, I just would like to make a plug for their classes. Um, you know, there's there's often Thank students you, who can Thank through you. Yes, get a college degree without having taken a history class is really scary. And if you are worried about any of the topics that we discussed, I think um, these three panel members just demonstrated how having an understanding of history can be really instructive to understanding current events um, and just being a good knowledgeable citizen. So uh, take their classes. And um, thank you, panel members, for, for volunteering your time. And thank you, those who took the time to watch um, our discussion today. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.